so I decided on a uh, on what's a very hard day and a very hard week to turn us to a psalm that some have called one of the darkest passages in all the Bible. <laughs> you might be surprised that we're turning to Psalm 88. We'll be in Psalm 88. One writer has said that it kind of presents this uh, a scene of wintry darkness. In fact, I've entitled my sermon here, The Darkness of God's Silence, Speak and Seek. Uh, one Old Testament scholar said this about Psalm 88, you'll either find it a tremendous treasure I'm paraphrasing here, a tremendous treasure or a profound problem. And I suspect that he's right, and I suspect that maybe some of you will find in this psalm a new friend. You'll find someone you can relate through, through a shared experience, and then maybe others will be offended by Psalm 88. Um, as long as you're not offended by me, that's okay that you might be offended by Psalm 88, so shocked that something like this is in the Bible and that I'm preaching on it, that you'll do your best to forget it or otherwise explaining it away by saying it doesn't say what it clearly says. Well, let me read Psalm 88 for you. <clears throat> Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. My prayer, may my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I am overwhelmed with troubles, and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken friends, you have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me? And hide your face from me. From my youth I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and, in, and am in despair. Your, your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. 
Darkness is my closest friend. Psalm 88 is a song, it's a hymn, and it's a prayer. And strangely enough, it was part of Israel's worship. Some people have tried to reconstruct how this psalm would have been used in the setting of, of, of worship, in the context of worship, but we really don't know. We don't know why it was written. We don't know exactly how it was used. Psalm 88 is a prayer about the darkness of unanswered prayer, about the darkness of God's silence. Our Christian culture has undoubtedly benefited from some popular teaching on prayer, uh, even some teaching on unanswered prayer. The great prophet of the 1990s, Garth Brooks, tells us the story of uh, how in high school he prayed that God would make this girl his, but he didn't. That prayer went unanswered, but later he married someone even better, right? And so he writes this song, this chorus, sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers, Remember when you're talking to, I can't hardly say it without wanting to sing it. Remember when you're talking to the man upstairs that just because he doesn't answer doesn't mean he don't care. Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. I remember that people in my church didn't like that song primarily because he called God the man upstairs. But its assertion about unanswered prayer isn't necessarily bad. It's pretty good theology for a country song. Um, I think we would all agree that sometimes it's a good thing that we don't get what we ask for. And not long after that, maybe in high school or when I was in college, I heard this popular teaching. The Bible never talks about unanswered prayer. There's no such thing. The answer is always yes, no, or wait. That kind of preaches well, right? It's sort of good, almost bumper sticker material. It has a down-home kind of folky wisdom about it, but I just don't find it very helpful. How do I know that a no is not a wait and that a wait is not a no? When it comes to praying for good weather, a new job, or a girlfriend, it might be good advice, but I can't imagine giving this advice to the writer of Psalm 88. We also like to find the secret to prayer in some kind of process or some kind of pattern, some kind of pattern. If we could just uncover this process or pattern or secret, our prayer lives will be more victorious, more successful. Some of you may remember the prayer of Jabez that came out. Oh, it's been years ago. But this little obscure prayer in the Old Testament that kind of became the secret to prayer, to getting what you ask for. Or we have these acronyms, like if you pray in the right order, right, that, that God somehow listens to those kinds of prayers in a way he doesn't other prayers. So the one I remember was the acronym ACTS. 
adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And the idea was, they didn't say it this way, but the idea was you really have to, you have to butter up God before you ask for what you want. These are tricks. These are gimmicks. They can be. They don't have to be, I guess, but they can be. But this psalm isn't really about prayer in general. It tells us nothing about how to pray or when to pray. It contains no secret words or phrases that we're supposed to adopt and adapt into our own prayer lives. The psalmist is asking for something that, from his perspective, God should grant. But God doesn't grant it, or at least he has not yet granted it, granted it even after many years of prayer. God is silent. He's not answering, and he's not, as far as the psalmist knows, even hearing his cries. Let's take a little closer look. What's the psalmist's situation? What is he going through that causes him to lift his cries to the Lord? It sure looks like it's some kind of illness, some kind of physical condition, a disease or disorder that has brought him to the verge of death. And even if that is the case, the language is still general enough to make this just about, uh, about just about anything. Any myriad of situations that would bring us close to death. Some have seen in the language of, of the waves have overwhelmed me and um, surround me like a flood. They've completely engulfed me. That this language of the waters is typically language of judgment. So maybe he's been falsely accused. Maybe he's facing a wrongful judgment. Whatever it is, he's on the verge of death. In verses 4 to 5, he's saying that he is as good as dead. He's so close to death that he's portraying himself as if he is already a corpse, like the slain who lie in the grave. And it's not just that death itself is, cons is his concern. It's the darkness of death. It's that death, from his perspective, cuts him off from the presence, from the care of God. We see this at the end of verse 5. Once he dies, God will remember him no more. Now, is he right? <laughs> I'll answer that a bit later. But at this point, he thinks he's right. And the reality of going to the realm of the dead, where God will remember him no more, consumes his thoughts, consumes this prayer. It adds darkness to darkness. Well, how did he get into this situation? Wouldn't we like to know? If we knew what got the psalmist into this situation, we could turn this maybe into a cautionary tale about how to avoid God's silence. But we don't know how he got into this situation, or do we? There are several different types of psalms, and this is called a lament psalm or a complaint psalm. But unlike other lament psalms, there are two components missing in this lament psalm. 
First, it's the only lament psalm that doesn't resolve. There's no turning from despair to hope. There's no turning from the darkness to confidence or trust. Psalm 88 reads a bit like Psalm 22 starts. This is the psalm Jesus quotes from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? That's Psalm 22. Sounds a lot like Psalm 88, but about halfway through, Psalm 22 takes a turn. And David begins expressing his praise and his confidence in the Lord's faithfulness. Psalm 88 has no such turn to praise or to confidence or to hope. It begins in darkness and ends in darkness. Literally, the last word of this psalm is darkness. And the second element of a lament psalm that Psalm 88 is missing is an enemy. Uh, There are no foes surrounding him, just friends abandoning him. There's no enemy ridiculing the name of the Lord or disrespecting Israel or anything like that in this psalm. There's no enemy. Or is there? There is. And it's actually quite obvious. You have put me in the lowest pit. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with your waves. You have taken me from my closest friends. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Now, it violates some of our conservative evangelical sensibilities to see it this way or even say it out loud, but this scripture, inspired scripture, presents God as the source of the psalmist's affliction. God in this psalm fulfills the role of the enemy. God is doing in this psalm what enemies, usually foreign, idol-worshiping enemies do in other lament psalms. What do we do with this then? Well, some have tried to turn this into the psalmist making some kind of profound theological statement about God's sovereignty. Um, Or maybe the psalmist is just wrong, and that this is why God is silent. But there's another option. What if the psalmist is just being honest about his experience? Based on what has happened to him, this is just how he feels. This is just how he is experiencing the darkness. We seem to have this need to sugarcoat our emotions when we come before God. to Like we're trying to, to fool him in prayer. Like for some reason he can't handle the honesty of our emotions. If you take anything away from the psalm, from this psalm. Let it be this. God can handle our honest emotions. So come before him honestly. Say what you mean and mean what you say when you come before the Lord. So we've looked at his situation. We looked at how he got there. 
Now let's look at what he's asking for. And this is interesting. There's really only one explicit request in this psalm. You have to almost look closely for it. In 18 verses, he's only directly asking for one thing. There's no direct request for healing, for deliverance, for salvation. It could be that he's already tried all of those things, and all he hears is silence. The, the one, the only direct, explicit request in this psalm is in verse 2. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. The psalmist wants to be heard. He wants God to listen. There are a hundred things I'm sure that he wants to happen, but he first wants to know that God is listening. Have you ever been there? Maybe you're there now. There's so much going on, so much wrong, so much evil, so much sorrow, so much pain, so much loss. That even though you have a hundred requests, you really just want to know that he's listening. This psalm tells us that we should tell him that. That we can ask him that. That we can express that emotion to him. While there's only one explicit request, there's also an implied request. Obviously, the psalmist wants to be saved. He wants to be delivered. He wants to be rescued and restored from being at the verge of death. He wants life. But not just any life. And this is important. Look carefully at the questions he asks in verses 10 through 12. Do you... Talk, speaking to the Lord, do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? He expects God's answer to all of these questions to be no. You don't show your wonders to the dead. The dead don't rise up and praise you. Your love is not declared in the grave. Your faithfulness is not declared in destruction. Your wonders are not known in the place of darkness. And your righteous deeds are not known in the land of oblivion. This is the answer he expects. The psalmist wants life. But he wants life so that he can live a life of praise. He wants life, but he wants life so that he can live a life of praise for God's wonders, praise for his righteousness, praise for his faithfulness. He's not asking for prosperity. 
He's not asking for a new job or a cute girlfriend. He doesn't want to be delivered so he can keep playing golf with his buddies every Saturday morning. He doesn't want to be rescued because so many other people need him around. He wants life so that he can live a life of praise to God. Now this might, and I hope it does, raise some questions. Coming from a New Testament perspective, we often think of the afterlife as the realm of praise more so than the present earthly life. Right? This is often our picture of heaven as this never-ending like worship service. But that's not how they thought about things in the Old Testament. I would argue that's also not how they think about things in the New Testament. Israel's praise was connected to their life. And death meant the end of that praise of God. When you died in the Old Testament, you went to the realm of the dead. Now, there is some indication that they did believe that it was a pleasurable experience for the righteous and an unpleasant experience for the wicked. Right? They didn't have this kind of more complete, more detailed revelation of what that's like that we do. But their focus was not on the final destination. The focus was on the life that God provided here in the realm of the living. And in light of that, these rhetorical questions make a lot of sense. The psalmist is crying out not just for life, but for praise, for the opportunity to praise, for a life of praise. The heart of his despair is that in death, he will no longer be able to praise God. So he asks, indirectly, for life. Well, we've covered most of this psalm. We understand the psalmist's situation, even though we don't know the details. We understand, at least from the psalmist's perspective, how he got there. He has been afflicted by God. It's interesting to note that in this psalm, he is accusing God of being unfaithful, but yet he's also depending on the faithfulness of God to answer. And maybe some of you have been there before too. We've left out one theme, though, that's present in three different verses in this psalm. And this theme, I hope, will bridge the gap between this psalm and our lives. I mentioned earlier that this lament is missing a turn. It's missing that turn to praise, the turn to confidence and hope. It is, as many have written, the darkest of all the psalms. And while there is no positive turn in the structure of the psalm, really, all hope is not lost. You see, there is a declaration of faith in Psalm 88. And it occurs three times. And it is this, that he prays. In verse 1, Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. Verse 9, I call to you, Lord, every day I spread out my hands to you. And then again in verse 13, but I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer Comes before you. Psalm 88 is not a private journal entry. 
like written for the psalmist's own benefit. If you took out these declarations of prayer, right, it would kind of read that way. Like he's having a bad, that would be an understatement, I guess. He's having a horrible, incredibly dark season of life, and he's writing in his journal about how he feels. But it's not that. It's a prayer. And the very act of praying is, in this case, the turn, the expression of hope, confidence, trust. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. I call out to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. The very act of praying like this is a confession of his faith. And perhaps it's the most focused confession we could have. He doesn't eloquently recount the story of God's faithfulness throughout Israel's history. It's a rough and a rugged, but a very focused statement of faith when he cries out, Essentially, what he's saying is this, God, you are my only hope. You are my only hope. You are the God who saves me. To you, I cry out day and night. You know, we, we can say all kinds of things about God, even true things. And we can do all sorts of religious acts. We can pray. We can sing. We can read God's word. We can listen to sermons. We can give. We can serve. But how often do we come before him and truly believe and confess that he alone is our only hope? Not our last resort, but our only resort. The psalmist, in spite of the darkness, has not given up or given in because he is still speaking. He is still praying. It's my prayer that you find Psalm 88 a tremendous treasure I hope that in it you found a friend who boldly expresses to God some of the same things you have experienced, some of the same emotions you have felt, but maybe didn't know what to do with them. I do want to be careful, though, not to apply this psalm too broadly. Not all of our complaints are godly complaints. Right? The psalmist is asking for a life of praise. He wants life to glorify God and to make his name known, not to pursue his pleasures and his hobbies. He knows that God is his only hope, even in the depths of the depression and the despair that we see here. Now, we are often driven to despair. We often look at things going on around us and are prone to despair. 
but often we're driven to despair precisely because we don't understand that God is our only hope. Um, Ivan mentioned it this morning. We saw a vivid and a violent example this week in what happened in Washington, D.C. of what happens when people despair but don't understand that their only hope is God. We saw what happens when hope is misplaced, confused, distorted, and perverted. We saw what happens when men and women want their way. Not a life of praise, but simply a way of life that they want. We see what happens when they want their way and use whatever means they have at their disposal to try to get it. So my message to us this morning is twofold, I guess. And, you know, my preaching professor from 20 years ago would be proud because they start with the same letter and they rhyme. So Southern Baptists would love this. Seek and speak. Seek a life of praise, believing that God is your only hope. And even in the darkness, speak. Even when there's silence, speak. And if the skies around you continue to grow darker and darker, continue speaking and continue seeking this life of praise. Of course, we know much more, as I said, of life after death and of life after life after death uh, than the psalmist did. I hesitate to say too much, though, because I don't want to somehow undo the darkness or minimize the despair we sometimes feel. The Apostle Paul does say that it's better for him to depart and to be with Christ. He says that dying is gain. That, however, doesn't cancel out this kind of longing and despair that the psalmist expresses. I mean, we see this in the New Testament, right? Jesus weeps at the death of his friend, even though he knew he was going to raise him. Death is still a time to grieve. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 tells us that as we encounter death, we still grieve, but we don't grieve like everyone else, like those without hope. There's still darkness, there's still grief, but it's not a grief without hope. And I don't think this psalm as dark as it is, and there's no happy ending here. We don't know the resolution, or if there was one. That he speaks and that he seeks this life of praise is the hope. I'm trying to think of a New Testament companion to a psalm like this. What I was drawn to was Romans 8. I'm going to read just a little bit of that before you as we close. 
sometimes we sometimes an obstacle to honest prayer is that we know too much. I don't know if that sounds bad or makes sense, right? Uh, I imagine it is sort of like uh, I've never been in this situation, nor would I ever be, but approaching like royalty from another culture, right? And they have these rules about what you can and can't do in front of the king, and you really want to talk right to the king or queen, but you're so caught up in all the, all these rules, like oh I can't do this and I can't say that, that that your, your your tongue is tied. And I think sometimes we know so much. I don't think we, too many of us know too much about the Bible, but like we know so much that honest prayer is hard because it's like, oh, I want to say this, but I can't say that because that contradicts this, which I believe is true. Like, you know, we get caught up. Our tongues get tied. And sometimes we're less than honest because of that. But then I think about Romans 8. I don't know. I'm going to start in verse 18. Because Paul makes a connection here between the earth itself and, and us. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this very time. Not only so, Right? Not only creation itself, not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Now, some have taken that to mean some kind of prayer language, like a speaking in tongues, I don't think, right? Creation groans. And sometimes we're in those periods of darkness where we don't even know what to pray for. And all we can do, literally, physically, is groan before the Lord. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And then this brings us, right? All of this leads us up to Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. 
who have been who have been called according to his purpose for those God foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters and those he predestined he also called and those he called he also justified those he justified he also glorified but this is all preceded by these times where we just groan where we don't have the words. We don't know what to pray for. So we groan, yet we believe that in this, the Spirit is interceding on our behalf. Would you pray with me?